Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we sit down with a couple who are bringing the taste of South Africa to London. I think he just threw that question out there once when we went on holiday once with them and he was just like, why don't you just open your own restaurant? And I was just like, oh, I don't even know where to begin, really. Also in the programme, we find out why chestnuts are so important this time of year in Portugal. It's so good. It's so good for it's everywhere for a reason, you know, like from Tashkas to home to Christmas Day, you know, there's always a chestnut puree around and the street ones are my favourite. They've got to be my favourite. They're super good. Plus, we discover San Francisco's unconventional Thanksgiving tradition. All that here on the menu on Monaco Radio. Deciding where to eat in London can be somewhat of a difficult task. With such a delicious melting pot of nationalities and cuisines, the choices are endless. But until a few years ago, if you wanted South African food in the city, there weren't that many places you could go. Enter Kudu, which opened its doors in 2018 to bring a refreshed version of the country's cuisine to the UK. Based in Peckham, Kudu is the brainchild of Amy Corbyn and Patrick Williams, and after its beginnings, the restaurant has gone from strength to strength. Now with a string of locations around South London, the core focus of the eatery has remained the same, to serve delicious cocktails, well-prepared South African classics such as poiki, perfectly grilled meats and of course their beloved kudu bread. Amy and Patrick joined us in the studio at Midori House to tell us more. So Patrick and I both had very different uh, jobs at the time. I was working a normal nine-to-five job and Pat was was a chef. But uh, as I'm sure you know, it's like those hours are completely opposite hours to each other. So I think it got to a point in our relationship where we thought, right, we need something to change now because it was kind of getting a bit more serious. And I think I was at a point where I wasn't really enjoying my job. And Pat was at a point where he wanted a new challenge. So we, yeah, we had an idea to basically do a restaurant together, um, which we'd been talking about for, I guess, a, a number of years before that of having like a little dream. And then we had an opportunity to look at for a site. So we started looking around South London and found a little chicken shop. <laughs> yeah, a nice little grubby chicken shop. That went round really well. But uh, it was quite daunting, actually. Yeah, we had these conversations very uh, casually going out for dinner, sitting in restaurants, being like, oh, it'd be great to have our own place one day. You know, my first job here was with Robin Gill. So his complete view on difference of sort of like running a restaurant was quite refreshing. And I think that really gave us an opportunity to think about how we would really want to do it. You know, change that, I say break the mold in a way, but not really break it in that way, but just make it a little bit more fun, a little bit more sort of like, I mean, being in a restaurant trade is never less stressful, but just make that stress a little bit easier to digest, I think is something. I mean, it, I don't think it's been any easier for Amy or I, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but well, yeah, it, it was a, a good challenge. And obviously Amy's dad was, I think he just threw that question out there once when we went on holiday once with them and he was just like, why don't you just open your own restaurant? And I was just like, oh, I don't even know where to begin really. And I think that's when it really evolved when Amy and sort of like really took that comment and was like, oh, actually, that's not a bad idea. And at first I was like, oh, you know, it's just one of those things being said just to sort of like reassure you, make you feel a little more comfortable about everything. And before you knew it, I think Amy had taken that baton and really went running with it. You know, before you knew it, there was a, an email here, a WhatsApp message there. Oh, look at this place, look at this place. And then we'd been going to uh, to Peckham for 
about maybe a year before that because her brother just moved uh, there and we kind of fell in love with it. I think Peckham was such a cool space. It hadn't been explored that much in terms of like restaurants. It was very much still sort of humble restaurants, nothing that's just, you know crazy or out there or anything like that. But the, the amount of interest in restaurants was insane. You know, we'd walk down the high streets on a Thursday, for example, and there'd be queues outside every single restaurant on the high street. All those little cool little spots. I mean, loads of Turkish, uh, Lebanese places, packed, packed with people. And we thought, oh, this is really cool. And then the more and more we went, it was really interesting to see how the demographic was quite unique as well. It wasn't sort of, you know, not to crochet in any way, but, you know, you go to specific places and it's like, it's box standard, you know, those sort of people live there, they do that sort of trade or that sort of lifestyle. Whereas Peckham is such a, a cool mix. I, I really like that because it's it's young professionals, it's it's young families like myself and Amy, and I think that's really where we gravitated to. And it gave us a chance to really just do something a bit different. Fast forward a few years, and speaking of keeping things not stressful, you've actually expanded quite a bit. But I think your story of expansion is really interesting. You now have four sites. What is the what is the appeal in expanding? And how do you expand in a way that feels cohesive, but also at the same time gives enough difference to justify going to all these places, particularly as, and I think this is very unique in your case, your locations are actually quite close to one another. So it's not like you're a mega chain opening <laughs> locations here, there and everywhere. A lot of your sites, in fact, all of your sites are concentrated in Southeast London. So why? Yeah, so I think we haven't gone out there to expand in a way that was aggressive in our minds wanting to have like a business plan and this was what we were going to do to execute it. It's been quite an organic process, although it might not look like that. We initially obviously had Kudu and then we basically realised that we really needed um, somewhere, a holding space for people to arrive because Kudu is such a small site that when people arrive for a drink, uh, you basically have to send them to like the pub across the road (laughs) (laughs) because we have nowhere um, where they can have a drink before their table's ready. So we had then an idea of creating a space where people could have a drink or a a glass of wine. And so we found this little site um, just under the railway arch. And that's what we kind of took on as our, our site for people. We would send people there and have a drink before or after dinner. We've recently actually changed that site into a site called Little Kudu, which is our new site, which is a tapas and wine bar. So it's kind of a play on Kudu because Kudu is a small plates restaurant, but Little Kudu is even smaller in terms of like little snacks. And the concept there is it's still South African influence, but everything is a bit more being able to pick it, pick the food up with your hands like bites and everything is high top seating, so it's slightly more casual dining. It's that you can walk in and just have a, a few snacks and a glass of wine, or you can have the whole menu. Let's talk about the food itself. When you guys opened Kudu in the first instance, I don't know if I can remember there being any other South African restaurants in London. Maybe there were, but they certainly weren't making the lists, let's say. <laughs> Please, can you tell us, I guess, what the staples the South African staples on the menu are, and also what cooking that cuisine means to you in London, but also in general. Uh, To be honest with you, I'm an extremely passionate and patriotic South African. I mean, I've been here for nine years, but I still count myself as a South African. So I really have that deeply ingrained in me. So for me, cooking over fire is definitely something that is essential. You can't be a South African restaurant if you're not cooking over fire or some sort of grill of some sort. But 
for us, it's more about sort of like using small little notes and little touches, spice blends, uh, smoking, little techniques, because it's such a multicultural country. You know, you could really pick and choose what you use on a, on any dish, really. But it's about making sure that we sort of like push out a little bit more knowledge. Like our bread, for example, at Kudu and at Little Kudu is based on a traditional South African bread. It's actually my grandmother's recipe. So it's kind of like a spice brioche, you know, heavily apple juice, loads of raisins in it as like the base, but obviously we just modified it a little bit. That's something for me is like quite nostalgic South African. Cooking over fire, always big cuts of beef like we have at the Kudu Grill. It's about having a big T-bone. That for me is like what I remember my dad eating as a kid. Uh, you know, go to a restaurant, it was always like a massive T-bone. Obviously when you're a kid, everything looks huge. So it probably wasn't that big, but that's how I, I really feel. It needs to be cooked over fire. It's so social. Everything is about coming over for a briar, your neighbors, your friends, your cousins, you know, people you don't even know well are there. And that's really what South African cuisine is about. And there have been, I think there was about three or four South African restaurants, but doing really classic style, you know, big wheels of brewers or, you know, things like that, where it was a little bit more rustic, which is cool. That's really what South African food is. It's quite rustic as, a, as an identity. What we wanted to achieve with Kudu was to try and polish it a bit and sort of, not just be like, oh, it's it's all awful or it's just a big piece of meat or something. You know, we wanted to be quite delicate about it. And and I did learn that from, you know, when I moved to London. It wasn't about, you know, all the smoke and mirrors and the, and the bubbles this and the foam that. It was about literally what you have on your plate looks simple and you really want to eat it. Uh, and you don't know how much level of effort's gone into that. You know, the guys in the kitchen have been there since like nine in the morning just doing a simple something. But all those little touches along the way were, were influenced and sort of like our background and our kitchen team is quite South African heavy. You know, I think it's like very, 90, very. <laughs> 90, 95% South Africans in the kitchen, which definitely helped me uh, creating new dishes. And they all come from different walks of life back home. You know, the African culture, Indian culture, English, Afrikaans, you know, so that has definitely helped us push a little bit further. I think being a little bit more South African mm. in terms of our style. Yeah, I'd say when you go to Kudu for the first time, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think this is South African food because it's not. It's modern European food with South African influences. And I think sometimes the South Africans are the hardest to please because everyone's got an opinion about what it, it what South African food is and what the, what is the right, I guess, way to cook certain things. But, um, yeah, I think we've got, like, a, a good kind of, like, niche thing going on there in terms of our cooking and well you're cooking <laughs> <laughs> classic no. no i have to say the kudu bread is exceptional <laughs> beyond belief um amy what's your food of childhood or what's your memory food so my mother is french so i grew up in a very kind of french household heavy cooking style uh so my my childhood memories is like creme brulee amy's mom is an exceptional cook yeah, I mean, she is I'm a very never good cook. unhappy ever going over for lunch there. Did you ever think of uh, bringing her in for a next <laughs> Well, she's offered. I'll she be honest offered, with you. Yeah. She's like, oh, you don't have a kitchen porter tonight. Do you want me to come help you? I'm like, Franny, no. You can't, like, no. I'm not going to let you do the dishes. <laughs> you know? So oh, yeah. hands on. So it's it's mostly that. My dad, obviously, he's um, he came from the restaurant industry. So I kind of grew up eating in restaurants. So, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be able to kind of go out for, like, lunches and dinners and on weekends and um, enjoy really nice food from a young age. 
which looking back now is quite funny. It's just like photos of me as a baby sitting in like really refined restaurants, <laughs> thinking that's really normal. <laughs> and now we have three kids. So I'm like, it's definitely not. <laughs> no, definitely not. You could bring him to Kudo every night. Um, <laughs> no, but I did want to ask you, how do you see then the situation has changed with regards to African food in London and in other major cities. Do you think, you know, compared to when you first started, when you say there were just a few restaurants here and there doing more of a rustic approach, do you think that there is a new wave happening of interesting things? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the West West African influence in, in London restaurant scene has just gone, you know, it's amazing. I think it's fantastic. that, But I think everybody's mindset of what, is good food now has really opened up a bit and broadened. You know, it's not just that classic way of, oh, it doesn't have a star or it doesn't have those accolades or whatever. You know, it can't be a good restaurant. I think nowadays it's like Amy and I absolutely prefer eating at those small little places, neighborhood spots that are really, you know, really humble. You go in there, it's not blow your head off expensive. It's just really good food at a really good price, good service, and that's and that's what it's about for us, really. That's what we're trying to achieve at our restaurants ourselves. So seeing what other restaurants are doing, with West African, obviously South Africans make it a little bit more of a touchdown now. I think it's really fun. I think it's cool. It gives us a little bit more of a challenge as well to sort of like keep ourselves reinventing, looking at how we, we process things. But for us, you know, you go to a Coco, I think it was one of my most memorable meals last year. Amy took me for my birthday and it was it was really good. It was fantastic actually. So and I love that. It's really refined food, but the base level of it is it's all West African or like African influence and I think it's I think it's great. What about cooking South African food in London? Are there any challenges in terms of ingredients, substitutions? Do you ever have to solve conundrums? Well, I I'm, I'm biased, so I'm going to be sort of saying, you know, it's about the meats. You know, base quality meat in South Africa is pretty good, you know, and it's obviously different different styles of farming here. But for us to find those classics like burrowers and stuff, you got to go to like a real South African specialist shop. We make it ourselves, so normally I just nick a couple of those before I go home if I'm doing a braai. But it always comes down to sort of just the fire. If you're using good quality fire, good quality woods and charcoals and stuff. I think that's just the recipe there. But that is a challenge. Also finding, you know, people invite you over, oh, come and have a barbecue. You know, I'm always like, oh, you know. But I don't want to do that because that's that's not cool. <laughs> so I don't think there's many challenges because this is England. You know, you guys get absolutely everything you need here. But yeah, I don't think there's that many challenges. Most of everything we make, our, you make ourselves. So, yeah. 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 And, and when I cook Some at home. Spices to honest, maybe. Spices. But I mean, you can get a lot of that here already. Um, and to be honest with you, sometimes the spices are probably better here. Uh, in my honest opinion. We turn now to Portugal, where autumn is marked by the abundance of one particular produce, chestnuts. Our correspondent in Lisbon, Gaia Lutz, went out to investigate the Portuguese love affair with the ingredient and sent us this report. Ah, autumn in Europe. It has to be one of my favorite seasons. A time for introspection and fireplaces, hearty meals and warm jumpers. Here in Lisbon, where the weather doesn't drop too drastically, nor do all the leaves fall from the trees, this season is announced in the subtleties. A crisper feeling to the air, light dimming a little sooner, and of course, the smell of chestnuts roasting on the streets.
the smell is very powerful and not just the smell the smoke so you can feel the presence of the street vendors anywhere in within four or five blocks mostly every neighborhood has like three or four people roasting them and selling them they are usually made by street sellers who roast them in in the middle of the street and then people just buy them and eat them around work in schools at home that's felipe reino a portuguese restaurant owner and son of portuguese restaurant owners I met Felipe and his parents at their restaurant, Aquiapeche, to find out more about why the Portuguese love their chestnuts come this time of the year. The tradition of eating chestnuts come from celebrating the death of Saint Martin, which is originally from France, but somehow in Portugal we we started celebrating his death by roasting some chestnuts. It's usually a tradition that goes throughout all November even the day the special day and the day that we celebrate his death it's the 11th but since the harvest time for the chestnuts is from October to December we we eat them throughout the month of November there's a very portuguese celebration to do which is magusto which is on the 11th of November we we gather around a fireplace there's always a big fireplace it's very it's very common to have and then we drink aguapé which is basically during this this uh, time of the year they clean the barrels from the wine and with the water that they use to clean the barrels there's like a, a very light and not so strong wine which is called aguapé it's more like a water with flavor of wine which we we drink it along with the chestnuts the festivities around st martin also connect to a bizarrely accurate weather phenomenon that never fails to happen around this time of the year in the country known as o verão de são martin the summer of st martin which which happens mostly every year it's because on the 11th on the day that he was buried the sun came out of the clouds and there was like this myth or tradition let's say and and mostly every year around this season there we have some very sunny and kind of warmer days for this time of the year so there's like this tradition of the summer of saint martin let's say So while the summer and beach days have definitely gone by, this season is marked by unusually blue skies and warm weather. Around the city, street sellers standing behind their carts can be found grilling their chestnuts on an open fire on corners outside metro stations and inside parks. I usually the um, the street vendors uh, roast the chestnuts over charcoal and they use like an iron bowl let's say and usually you can feel the smoke and the smell from far away and they sell them they used old phone books and they would take out the pages and they would do a little cone where they they would sell the chestnuts still to this day you have the little still, still in this day well phone books are not so common 
nowadays, but they use old newspapers, old magazines. Just they just there's some sort of sustainability in this, where they use old pieces of of paper to just roll and do a little cone for the chestnuts. Chestnut season plays out in many ways here in Portugal. The knot famously features on the streets, as we've heard, but also at Portuguese homes and restaurants. It's so good. It's so good for it's everywhere for a reason, you know. Like from Tashkas to home to Christmas Day, you know, there's always a chestnut puree around. And the street ones are my favorite. They've got to be my favorite. They're super good. I'm, um, I mean, I'm from New Zealand, and we don't really have a tradition of eating them in New Zealand. There's, I know that the, the British, we're basically British, right? And I know that the British used to have the same style of like grills and stuff all over the street until they banned like open fires in, in London. So I never really got to dabble with it. So when I moved here, instantly in love, you know, like oh, so good. And being a big forager as well, it's um, a nice wild thing to be able to grab and then treat in like a traditional way or and obviously put spins on it as we do. That's George McLeod, chef and co-founder of Sang, a Lisbon restaurant that does things differently. Yes, yeah, so Sang, the restaurant, we're zero waste. We're, we only use, we're in two ways, we're, we don't use any plastic whatsoever, and we're zero food waste. So we're very conscious of where food is coming from, how it's being prepared, and then also the other products that you get, which would normally be considered waste, but we don't use that, we try not to use that word, like other byproducts that you get. So from chestnuts, for example, you... You have the nut, which is inside the skin, which is then inside of a shell. We approach the, the nut with three different techniques to, to process and use all of the pieces, all of the elements. At the moment, we're, because they're so filling, we, and they're quite flowery, you know, they're, especially if you don't grill them. When they're grilled, they go a little bit caramelized, a little bit chewy, like they're nice, that gummy, like, oh, so good. But if you just blanch them or cut them open raw they're quite flowery they're so we we use it in the base of as if you were making like a bechamel you make like a roux with chestnuts and butter and like soft chestnuts and butter and you cook it out and cook it out and cook it out until it like basically emulsifies and then you use that as the base of the soup which we're doing while chestnut soup is one of the many more traditional dishes served here in portugal this season along with boiled chestnuts and chestnut puree george gives his recipe the sang spin using the whole nut, and I mean also its skin, in the dish. To use the skin, we score it and then we roast it, rub it in a little bit of salt and then we roast it. And then as we're taking the nuts out, um, we then re-roast the skins to basically to blacken them to completely like evenly like dehydrated, burnt, not quite burnt. There's a, there's a fine line between blackened and burnt. Um, so they're like really heavily caramelized. And then, and, that, and then you can just turn them into a powder. You know, so then we take that powder and then mix it with a burnt citrus pith, like the white part from the citrus. Uh, we use the, the I, I wish I knew the name, the, the name of the oranges, but all of the oranges that are around the city, the really bitter ones they use for like marmalade. Um, we use those ones. We, we freeze them and then we burn them on the, on the charcoal and then we take the zest off. Um, and then so the white part is, of the fruit is smoky. We then dehydrate that and then blend that in with the chestnut skins for a powder to finish the, the complete dish. From Monaco in Lisbon, I'm Gaia Lutz. Thanks, Gaia. You're listening to The Menu. 
Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monaco's Monica Lillis. In Spain, supermarkets are locking up bottles of olive oil as a result of surging prices and theft increases. One litre bottles of the household staple are selling for as much as €14.50, putting them in the high security category for some retailers. Olive oil prices in the nation are now officially at €8 a litre, having surged by 150% over the last two years. A bottle of the world's most sought-after Scotch whisky has sold for more than £2.1 million at Sotheby's in London. According to the auction house, the Macallan 1926 is one of just 40 bottles drawn after ageing for 60 years, making it one of the oldest Macallan vintages ever produced. The high price set a new record for a bottle of spirit or wine sold at auction. And finally, a Norwegian blue cheese has won the title of the world's best cheese at the World Cheese Awards in Trondheim, Norway. The Nadelvan Blar by cheesemaker Gangstad Gorshistri was awarded this year's prestigious title and was commended for its dense fudginess and fruity overtones. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Kiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. As Americans from coast to coast emerge from Thanksgiving celebrations, many of them may be nursing a little indigestion after consuming too much turkey, too much pumpkin pie and maybe a little bit too much wine. But US journalist Simon Marks recently discovered a Thanksgiving culinary tradition that doesn't involve any of those. And he sent us this report from Northern California. I'm in Union Square, one of San Francisco's best-known landmarks, and even though Christmas is still a month away, the Christmas tree is up and towering over us, the ice rink is already operational and packed, the shop windows are all decorated for the season, and you can almost sense the new year just around the corner. But first, this city and the whole country must get through Thanksgiving, truly the biggest holiday of the year in the United States. And here in the Bay Area, forget about the traditional roast turkey and all the trimmings. For generations, they've been marking Thanksgiving Day with a different dish entirely. You are listening to the sound of live crabs crawling over one another in a plastic storage container at a San Francisco market. But not just any old crabs, they are Dungeness crabs that inhabit eelgrass beds up and down America's Pacific coast and have been considered a delicacy here for decades. They are also now a central dish on the Thanksgiving table in the San Francisco Bay Area but in the last few weeks have been the subject of some headline-grabbing news. New it too, some bad news for the fishing industry and anyone who likes to eat Dungeness crab in time for Thanksgiving. For the fifth year in a row, the State Department of Fish and Wildlife is delaying the start of the commercial crab season. The problem is that humpback whales are still migrating south along our coast, and those whales get tangled up in commercial crabbing gear. And so in order to protect the whales, whose migration now takes longer than it used to due to the warming waters of San Francisco's Pacific coastline, commercial fishermen were told the Dungeness crabs are off limits until at least the middle of December. News that came just three weeks before Thanksgiving, the biggest day in the crabbing calendar. Some of my early fishing memories were going fishing with my grandfather and my dad, and then by the time I was 15, I was working on boats. John Barnett has been fishing in San Francisco Bay for the last 20 years and heads the Crab Boat Owners Association. The crab season's kind of broken up into what I like to say two seasons. 
About 70% of what you catch is caught in the first week of the season. Lose that first part of the season, as the crab fishermen have now done every year since 2017, and there's a real economic impact of the laudable desire to save the whales. It's kind of big crab and full of meat. The meat is very tasty and sweet. John Trong is the co-owner of PPQ Dungeness Island, an enormously popular restaurant specialising in Dungeness crab in the Little Russia section of San Francisco. Does it create supply difficulties when the season keeps getting delayed? Yeah, it has, yeah, uh, impact, yeah. They're just getting more expensive to get the crab. But if you cannot get the crab from the local, you can get the crab from Washington. Further up the coast? Up of course, yes. He estimates those crabs from Washington State are 30% more expensive than the local catch. But with Dungeness crabs so popular in San Francisco over the Thanksgiving holiday, this year he once again had no choice but to bring them in from California's northern neighbour, as I discovered when he showed me around. We're now right by the kitchen and you have got two massive tanks of live crab. Do people choose their own crab or do you choose for them? We choose for them. We always have the good size of crowd. In the kitchen, a hive of activity was underway with the imported Dungeness crabs, the stars of the show. You cook it live, right? You put it into the saucepan live. And what else is in there? Uh, Cream, garlic butter cream. Garlic butter, cream, and the crab. And pepper. And that's it. And And pepper. pepper. And that's it. That's it, yeah. And I can see that you're almost ready, almost ready to put it on the plate. And then it was time to plate up the crab, smothered in creamy garlic broth and served with a side of garlic butter noodles. I didn't fancy having to crack a crab while simultaneously recording an interview, so chose instead a dish of John's own creation. Crab meat already pulled out of its shell and again served with those garlic noodles. We've now got this fantastic plate of... um, Garlic crab over garlic noodles. What were you seeking to achieve when you developed it? It was adjusting traditional Vietnamese cuisine for an American market, right? Yeah, that's right. And for some people, they don't want to crab the crab. And this is the more convenient way for them to eat the crab. It looks absolutely delicious. I am going to try it. (laughs) Can't wait. Mm. Wow. That is garlicky. Well, the recipe is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. As I munched on, John explained that the popularity of Dungeness crabs on the Thanksgiving tables of the West Coast is in large measure due to the influence of San Francisco's sizable Asian population. Families, in other words, just like his own. Our families come from uh, Vietnam, Saigon. Me and my sister came here first at... 1975, my father and all my brother and sister, they came over after eight years. We find out the Dungeons Club is very specialty in, in, in San Francisco. Been very good business. Your family, over Thanksgiving, what do you eat? We eat turkey, <laughs> Dungeons Club, uh-huh. yeah. roast duck, steamed fish, and all kinds of vegetables. Yeah. What's your favourite? My favorite is the Dungeons Crowd. <laughs>
Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? The restaurant was open for Thanksgiving and had been booked out weeks in advance by San Franciscans who didn't know when they made their reservations that their Thanksgiving crabs would be coming from up the coast instead of just off it. To them, it doesn't make much difference, but to the fishermen and the restaurateurs in San Francisco, this Bay Area tradition is now impacted by climate change that is keeping the humpback whales around longer and the crabs safe in their eel beds, at least for now. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in San Francisco. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune in to our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Kerarimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Sondela Forever by Moodzi. Thanks for listening and until next week. Passport full, that's a big stamp. I can take you there, but you love that. Need to save first money in the bank. Picnic boys bring that orange juice.